Please turn with me in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. We'll actually be going two places this morning. We're going to start in Colossians chapter 3, and then we're going to move on to Revelation 19. And I'm going to read the whole chapter of Colossians chapter 3. Give attention to God's Word. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked. When you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, 
and that without partiality. This is the word of the Lord. None of us live as if that is real. We live as if the only things that are real are the things that we can see and touch and taste and hear. We chronically are people who live by sight and not by faith. And what I want to do this morning is to try and pull back the corner of the veil so that we can catch a glimpse of what is really there. I want us to see that what Paul says in Colossians 3 is very real. I want us to see the things that are above so that we can seek them, so that we can set our minds on them. I want us to see the reality of having our lives hidden with Christ in God. I want us to get a taste of what it will mean to appear with Christ in glory when He appears. Because we must obey the commands of Colossians 3. You saw as we read through this chapter, it is nothing, almost nothing but commands. Do's and don'ts, which we must obey. We must obey these commands and we must seek and set our minds on the things that are above. The vitality and the strength and the health of our lives as Christians absolutely depend on it. The ability to kill your sexual immorality and impurity and passion and lust and covetousness depends on setting your minds on things above. The ability to kill your anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk depends on it. The ability to stop lying depends on it. The ability to live as an upright, compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forgiving person depends on it. The ability to love depends on it. The ability to be a submissive wife as God commands you wives to be depends on it. The ability for us husbands to be loving and self-sacrificing as God commands us to be depends on it. The ability for you children to obey your parents in everything depends on it. The ability to work heartily as unto the Lord depends on it. All of these commands depend on obeying the first commands in the chapter. Set your mind on things above. Keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And I'm convinced that a major reason that we so often fail in our attempts at godliness at our attempts to obey God and grow in obedience to Him, to grow in righteousness as we walk with Him in real, practical, concrete ways as this chapter is filled with. I'm convinced that a major reason we so often fail is that we always skip over this first part. We skip over this part that has to do with seeking God and setting our hearts and minds on God. We skip over that part We're impatient with that. We want to get on to the good stuff. We want to get on to the stuff that tells us what to do. The stuff that has to do with us. Because then we can do something that will make us feel better about ourselves. 
And so we never even begin to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Give me something practical. Give me something that I can do. Tell me what I'm, that I am able to do something. Don't bother me with all of this mystical, unseen reality smoke stuff. I'm a man who lives in this world. Give me something I can sink my teeth into. Give me something I can wrap my hands around. Give me something that I can touch and taste and see. And as we insist on living by sight, we cut ourselves off from the one thing that we most desperately need. The one thing that we most desperately need is a vision of the glory and the magnificence and the beauty and the awe-inspiring majesty of Jesus Christ. As He is, high and exalted, at the right hand of the high King of Heaven. You men, you want to know how to kill your addiction to pornography. Look at Jesus Christ. And with that vision burning in your eyes and in your heart and in your mind, put to death what is earthly in you. Kill sexual immorality. Kill impurity. Kill passion. Kill lust. Kill covetousness. Which is idolatry. Kill it. You women... Want to know how to stop being consumed with pettiness and anger and bitterness? Look at Jesus Christ and with the reality of His glory blazing in your eyes, put them all away. Put away anger. Put away wrath. Put away malice. Put away slander. That is what the Apostle Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 3. And he is not talking about some simplistic formula. He is not giving us some secret to instant, easy, spiritual success. But He is telling us where we absolutely must start. If we are going to have any hope at all of living in obedience to God, we must start by seeing the reality of the glory of Jesus Christ. Only that will empower us to kill what is earthly inside of us. So, that is what I want us to, to get a glimpse of this morning. The glory of Jesus Christ for the purpose of killing your sin. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, where we, we have the corner, the veil, the curtain, peeled back, and we get a glimpse of the things that are above. The things where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Revelation chapter 19, I'm going to start with verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her 
immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What the book of Revelation does is put the whole Bible in visual terms. It shows us what the rest of the Bible tells us. Paul tells us in Colossians 3 that we just read a minute ago that Jesus Christ is above where God is. It tells us that Jesus Christ will appear in glory. It tells us that everyone who trusts Jesus will appear with him in glory. But John shows us. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Can you see it? Can you see it? 
you had better see it because you're commanded to. John says in verse 11, Then I saw heaven open and, behold, a white horse. He commands us to look. He calls us to look, to behold, to see. Can you see him? Can you see him in his glory and power? Can you see him in his wrath and majesty? Can you see him in his sovereign authority? Just just look at him. Look at him through the words that have been written for you. What do you see? He is not walking along the beach in little sandals, leaving footprints. He is not lingering in the garden alone. He is mounted on a battle stallion, ready for war. He's not some smooth, self-serving politician. He is faithful and true. He is not tolerant. He judges and makes war. He is not meek and mild. His eyes are a flame of fire. He will not submit to anyone's agenda. On his head are many crowns. He is not clothed in a soft, unstained, pretty white dress. His battle robe is dipped in blood, and it's not his blood. It's the blood of his enemies. He is not leading a ragtag little group of timid misfits. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. He is not whispering niceties and spiritual platitudes. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He is not soft and easygoing. He rules with a rod of iron. He is not open-minded and jolly. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And he will not be trifled with or used as a genie in a bottle. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you see him? Have you ever seen him like that? Or have you manufactured for yourself a nice, respectable, clean, docile, housebroken little Jesus who serves you at your beck and call, who swoons when he sees you? No wonder we are overwhelmed with lust and anger and selfishness and pettiness. The Jesus that we see is a timid, flaccid, spineless hippie. And so many of us can't even begin 
to imagine how seeing Jesus can give us strength and fortitude and courage and power to deal with our deep, awful, wicked sins. Of course, we can't see the connection because our vision of Jesus is basically Mr. Rogers on Valium. Where is the power in that? Where is the overwhelming awe in that? Where is the fear in that? Where is the motivation in that? Where is the hope in that? So what is your Jesus like? Does he even remotely resemble the real Jesus that John saw? Ask this question. Does your Jesus have enemies? Does your Jesus wear a robe dipped in blood and trample the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty? Or is he more like a cheerleader? More like a motivational speaker? More like your own personal trainer who wears leg warmers? Your own personal Richard Simmons? Is he your king or your butler, your servant, your slave. Now, I know that some of you are probably thinking, where is the encouragement in that? I thought Jesus was my friend. I thought Jesus was meek and lowly of heart. I thought he was filled with kindness and compassion and tenderheartedness and patience. I thought he was the bridegroom who laid down his life for the bride. You know what? He is all of that and more. But you will never understand and appreciate or really benefit from the wonders of all of that until you also come to grips with what John saw in Revelation 19. With who John saw in Revelation 19. All of the meekness. All of the kindness. All of the tender-hearted compassion that you know Jesus has will be completely watered down and ultimately useless to you if you don't also embrace the might and the wrath and the fury and the power and the majesty that you see in Revelation 19. Because if Jesus has no enemies, then he makes a terrible friend. What kind of friend is he for you if he has no enemies? What is the value of his friendship if he stands against no one? What is the value of his care for you if he has no concern to stand against those who would destroy your soul? And if Jesus has no enemies, then he makes a powerless Savior. What's he going to save you from? Listen to these words from Luke chapter 1. When the birth of Jesus Christ, the coming of John the Baptist, all of that is announced. And here's what the kinds of things that people say in response to that. Luke 1, 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn 
of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Jesus came to deliver us from our enemies. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to to be destroyed is death. Does your Jesus have enemies that he must subdue? Praise God, Jesus has enemies. And if Jesus has no enemies, then he makes a terrible king. How can a good and just king have no enemies? But he does have enemies. Psalm 21. Your hand, this is a psalm speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will, listen to this, you will aim at their faces with your bows. This is Jesus Christ. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is your King. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Glory in His strength. Glory in His power. Psalm 45. Again, another psalm about our Lord Jesus Christ. It says of Him, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and majesty, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. The hand with the sword in it. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. This is your Lord. This is our Lord, Jesus Christ. When the writers of the New Testament quote the Old Testament, here's a, a trivia question for you. Not trivial at all. But when the writers of the New Testament quote the Old Testament about Jesus, do you know which passage from the Old Testament they quote the most? Does anyone know? Who knows? Anybody? 
Psalm 110. Yeah, you're quoting it. It's Psalm 110. This is the most frequently quoted passage about Jesus Christ in the New Testament from the Old. And here's what it says. The Lord, Jehovah, the High King of Heaven, God the Father, the Lord, says to my Lord, His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. That is Jesus. That is the real Jesus. But is it your Jesus? Is your Jesus nothing more than a guru, a teacher, a rabbi? A nice little man who said nice little things to nice little people? Or is he the King of kings and Lord of lords. You will only have power to kill your sin when you see him. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Power, majesty, authority, glory. And then put to death your sin. One more psalm. Psalm 68. 1-3. says this, God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate Him shall flee before Him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But, but the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. There are two groups there. The enemies of Jesus and the friends of Jesus. The enemies of Jesus will be scattered. They will run. He will drive them away. He will kill them. They will melt like wax before the fire. But the friends of Jesus will be glad. They will exult. They will be glad before Him. Instead of being driven away from Him, they will stand before Him and be glad. 
and they will exult. They will be thrilled before him. They will be jubilant with joy. And that brings us back to Revelation 19. Everyone in this room is in either one or the other of those groups. Everyone in this world is in either one or the other. And that brings us back to Revelation 19 because Revelation 19 goes on to say that God will put on two feasts one day. We read about one of the feasts already in the passage I read to you. Verse 6, and you will be at one or the other of these two feasts. Verse 6 is the first. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. These are the friends of Jesus standing before him in his presence. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Verse 9, and the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be a feast for the wedding of the Lamb. A feast thrown to celebrate the final victory of the King. A feast of rejoicing and celebration and joy where the people of God, the bride of Christ, will be clothed in white linen, fine and clean, Rejoicing forever in the presence of the Lamb. Everyone who attends that feast will be blessed forever. But there's another feast. I didn't read this to you before, but it's in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. In the one feast, Jesus invites his bride, the church, to come and enjoy a feast. In the other, Jesus declares that his enemies will be the feast. And all of us will be present for either one or the other. Our culture has sold us a bill of goods. Our churches 
have sold us a bill of goods. And they have told us that Jesus is a tolerant, easygoing flower child. It has told us that Jesus accepts people just as they are and has no intentions at all to change anyone. It has told us that the greatest expression of Jesus' love is to never judge anyone. And all of it is a lie. It is a lie that is calculated to keep you in your sins. Jesus will kill people with the sword that comes out of his mouth. That is the real Jesus. That is the Jesus who offers you terms of peace. Do you, do you understand? The Jesus who will come back and kill his enemies is the Jesus who right now, right now is standing right here offering you terms of peace. And the terms of peace are signed in his own blood. And he's offering them to you. Will you accept these terms of peace? You will submit to him. He will either rule you with his hand of mercy, compassion, kindness, forgiveness, or he will rule you with a rod of iron. But he will rule you, and you will submit. Will you submit to him and find mercy from him and a full pardon for all of your sins and the joy of his favor and the glories of knowing him and being known by him and being loved by him? Or will you be content to continue on as his enemy and be dashed to pieces? Which supper are you going to? And if you are a Christian, if you have bowed your knee to him, submitted to his absolute authority, believed what he has said, trusted what he has done, tasted the glories of his mercy and compassion and kindness and forgiveness, does the version of Jesus that you accept and embrace match the one here in Revelation 19? Is the vision that, of Jesus that you have in your head powerful enough? This is what it boils down to. Is the vision that you have in your head powerful enough to enable you and motivate you to kill your sin? Does it make sense for you to read Colossians 3? Set your mind on the things that are, that are above. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Therefore, Put to death whatever is earthly in you. Do you get the logic? Does it make sense to you? Because of what you see, seated at the right hand of God. Oh, may God open our eyes. Jesus Christ is willing, able, powerful Savior. Put all of your faith in Him. Let's pray.